I'm Bernie Crane. I'm John Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session with Jason Crane, our dad. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 431 for Sunday, July 28th, 2013. Today we take a look at Cuneiform Records with its founder, Steve Feigenbaum. As I'm recording this on Saturday evening, the show has just a little while ago hit the $6,000 mark in its campaign to raise $6,000. So that means the Kickstarter campaign is 100% funded and it's a success. <laughs> it's amazing. We did it. The thing is, and this is, I think, where, to me, actually, hitting the goal is really exciting. This is actually the part right now, this part right now, where I feel the most anticipation of the entire campaign, and I'll tell you why. Hitting the $6,000 is awesome, and if not one more person pledges, the jazz session will come back and I'll make 12 new episodes and it'll be great. And it'll, we'll do exactly what we said we were going to do and it'll be fantastic. But a few things to know. One is Kickstarter actually takes 8% of the money. So if you raise $6,000, you actually get $5,500. So to actually get $6,000, I need to raise another five or $600 to deal with what Kickstarter will take. More important than that, though, is this. For the entire course of the campaign, I never once mentioned anything about myself because I wanted people to kick in that money to support the jazz session. I didn't want people to kick in that money to support me personally or my life or my survival or anything like that. I wanted to see if enough people wanted the jazz session to come back that they would pledge $6,000 of their money to make that a reality? The answer to that question is yes. That's amazing. But here's the thing. This could become a show-changing and life-changing campaign for me, depending on what happens between now and 11.59 p.m. on Wednesday, July 31st. What if this campaign raised $8,000? What if it raised $10,000? What if it raised $12,000? What if it raised $20,000? All of those things are completely possible. And they would allow me to do so much more with the jazz session. They would take this from something that would allow me to make 12 shows into something that really had a solid enough foundation to be sustainable into the future. Between now and 11.59 p.m. on Wednesday, July 31st, everybody who pledges gets all the thank you gifts, uh, you know, everything that comes with the Kickstarter campaign. All of that stuff is still on the table. You can still get all those things, the free MP3s, the books, the CDs, the baseball signed by all the guests on the new shows, 
Uh, you can attend an interview. All of those various thank yous at the various pledge levels are still active until the 31st at 11.59 p.m. And the reality of the situation is now we we really have a chance to say even more, to 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 turn this into a real viable entity. I think now, for me, as I said, is the most exciting time because I was always pretty sure we'd make the $6,000. I mean, every time I've asked you folks to help me keep this show going, you've done it. You know, I guess I, nothing's certain, but to me, you folks are the most certain thing. I just know that there are people who care about the show, and they're generous. And when I come to you and say, hey, would you help out? You always do. It's amazing. And I mean, it's a good show. I'm not going to be falsely modest and say, I don't know why you would support this thing. I think you support it because it's worth supporting. But it is overwhelming to me. I mean, I'm not sure what percentage. I haven't looked yet to see what percentage of the former members came back in this Kickstarter campaign, but it's a high number. And so many musicians and past guests on the show, it's it's just incredible. And now, as I said, we have the chance to do even more. So here's what I'm asking you to do. If you're listening to this and you haven't pledged yet, would you please go to thejazzsession.com and click on the Kickstarter campaign links and pledge whatever you can afford? Everything from $5 up uh, gets you mentioned on the show and the website. Everything from $10 up gets you instantly three free MP3s, one from Jeffrey Kieser, one from Maria Christina, and one from Nadia Nordhaus. And then above that, there's all kinds of other thank you gifts. So if you're listening right now, and you haven't pledged, would you please do me a favor before Wednesday at 11.59 p.m. and pledge right now? If you're listening now and you have already pledged, I'd like to ask you a different favor, which is would you help me spread the word? If you've got an email newsletter, if you have a Facebook account, if you have a Twitter account, if you have a Google Plus account, if you have a, a Pinterest or a Tumblr, if you just occasionally talk to and email people, could you ask them to consider supporting the Jazz Session and tell them that you did and why you did? Because you would not believe the impact that that has. So we've made the goal. The Jazz Session is coming back. There will be episodes 422 through 434. That's going to happen. Now the question is, what else can we do? Can this become a a game-changing Kickstarter campaign? I think it can. In fact, I'm sure it can. And all it takes is you. We're going to get into the cuneiform record stuff in just a minute, but one last thing on this Kickstarter. There are a, a group of people in my life who I feel particularly lucky to call my friends and who, no matter what, are always there helping me succeed at the things that I'm doing. Uh, the first person who comes to mind where this Kickstarter campaign is concerned is Patrick McCurry, uh, who, without whose urging, I probably wouldn't have done it at all. And then Patrick has been there every step of the way. If you could see Patrick's email inbox, uh, it would be disturbing <laughs> because it's just my name, I think, hundreds of times. Another person is Josh Rutner uh, of the Respect Sextet, who made some suggestions that were so key to the success of this thing 
that in the same way that without Patrick, I wouldn't have done it at all. Without Josh, I don't think it would have worked. And then there's another person with whom I shared pretty much all of the things I was doing each step of the way and got feedback. And that's my friend Nikki Schreira, who many of you know. She's been on this program. Uh, she's a fantastic vocalist. And Nikki did something that I did not expect. And, uh, well, that I'll just be honest, kind of goes right to the core of me and makes me extremely grateful and happy. And that's that she wrote a song for the jazz session. And here it is. I like to hear them talk. That's how I start my day. I like to hear their music and what they've got to say about it. quite the mensch and he's a friend of mine the jazz session is his kid can you spare a dime and bring it back what would life be like without the jazz session jazz session dull and filled with strife we need the session, jazz session. So we've got to fight to save the jazz session, jazz session. Kickstart it if you'd like to help the jazz session, jazz session. Please pledge today. So that beautiful piece of music was from Nikki Shvira, and I encourage you to go into the Jazz Session archives and find her interview and find her at NikkiShvira.com. Her last name is S-C-H-R-I-R-E. And now it's time for the actual episode. Thank you for staying with me through all this stuff at the beginning, but it was important for me to get all that out there. While I was on tour last year, I actually stayed in the home of the founders of Kineaform Records and had a wonderful time hanging out with them and had a chance to chat with Steve Feigenbaum. And for whatever reason, I'm not sure exactly why this happened. I, I think, I think actually because I had filed this interview in a different folder than the rest of the interviews, I never aired this interview. There was no reason not to air it. I just didn't. And I forgot it existed, uh, which, you know, is a sign of something, I'm sure. And I discovered it just the other day and realized, oh, my Lord, I never aired this interview. And it's perfect because here it is during the campaign. So check out this interview with Steve Feigenbaum. And we're going to just play a bunch of current stuff from... Uh, cuneiform records all throughout the interview, starting with Wadada Leo Smith from 10 Freedom Summers.
My guest is Steve Feigenbaum. He's the founder and uh, still the head of Cuneiform Records, based here in uh, Silver Spring, Maryland. And it is my pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for being here. Hi, nice to be here. So I, I think it's probably makes the most sense, even though it's also the most obvious, to talk about first uh, why you started a record label all those moons ago. I started a mail order business in January of 1980 called Wayside Music, and Wayside Music still exists concurrently with Cuneiform Records. And I was doing that for about three or four years, and it was going well. And at the time, and my being very young, um, having a record label seemed like the next step in in that sort of trajectory and uh, musical work I was doing. So it really just came from that. It seems, though, in uh, well, in this day and age, but I think the same was true even in the '80s, that the idea, and in the '80s, there were actually competitors. I mean, there were actually still were record labels of of substance and size that were doing improvised music. It seems like quite a daring move to make to decide I'm going to start my own label. Was there some niche that you saw? Was well, not being I, I, quite honestly, I really wasn't doing improvised music at that point. I mean, it depends how you define improvised music. And, sure. Um, you know. It, I mean, it always sort of, I, I always sort of think of what we do as sort of a funny, uh, in-betweeny thing. Uh, I've always done rock. Um, I've always or almost always done jazz. Um, if you're, you know, if you're, you're a really adventurous, adventurous listener, um, probably think that what we release is really wimpy. And if you're, uh, you know, a, a conservative listener, you probably think that it's a bunch of noise. So we've always kind of <laughs> fallen into that. So, you know, I mean, I, I, I want to be careful because, I mean, improvised music to me at least means a very specific thing. And while we have done some of that, it's a very small part of the label. Um, so I, I'm not quite sure what, what you mean. Um, you know, in the eighties, when I started, I, I was probably most influenced by, um, uh, you know, by classic, uh, ECM, by the classic seventies years of the Virgin label and by, complex rock as 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 typified by by what is now known as rio or rock in opposition so and at that time actually there was nobody doing that sort of thing there was it was very out of favor and um very unhip and very uncool and um obviously the label has been around for a long time and the focus has changed uh or not so much maybe changed, but evolved, uh, as, you know, hopefully all things should do. But, um, we're still very involved with that thing as well. Um, but, you know, other things came, other labels came out doing similar things. And, um, uh, you know, I mean, from the late eighties to, you know, 2004, I guess was like the, the golden age of, of, small labels and 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 basically the the recording industry in general i think at least in 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 my work lifetime and if and it's all got over the cliff since then so uh it was adventurous i guess of me to do it but i was also i was very young and you know i didn't really think about what was involved it's just like oh this would be a good idea 
How did you begin recruiting artists to the label? Um, well, I'd been doing the mail order for a while, and so I knew artists that way. And in some cases, I'm thinking of some. I'm trying to think. I mean, I have to think back. This is now, you know, sure, <laughs> close to 30 years. You know, in some cases, it was artists that had self-released the record and I'd done well with it or I particularly liked what they were doing and I invited them to do their next release on Cuneiform. That's like the very earliest uh, uh, stuff was that, yeah, I was carrying it in the mail order in the Wayside Music and then would invite them uh, to work with Cuneiform. But, you know, there's always a a need, uh, artists looking for someone to help them do the work um, because it's a lot of work and most artists are not you know there every now and then I I I do work with uh, an artist or a band and they're just like shockingly uh, uh, thorough and businesslike and 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 it's like you know wow this guy could be like hitting a, a company but most of the time it's not like that you know most of the time they're I don't know whether it's right-brained or left-brained, but whatever brain that, that, <laughs> that, that artists are, they are, and they're not good at the other side of things. So there's always people looking for someone to help or, you know, and, and help with the expense, of course. And so very quickly, you know, we were doing it and um, kept doing it. And so people started looking for us. People, you know, people were, 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 were sending demos to, to us within a couple of years and I mean that's pretty much since the third or third year is is how we operated as people sending stuff which is still true
And do you wear a, a producer's hat as well as a label owner's hat in these situations? Do you work with artists on the on the creative side of the project? Um, well, not in the sense of like, you know, not in the Manfred Eicher sense. I'm not in the studio with them. Uh, you know, we work with artists all over the world and, uh, you know, our budgets are, are, are shockingly small um, and have always been shockingly small. And so generally I might make, you know, it depends on the artist. If it's somebody that I've never worked with before and I think they've got a germ of some ideas there or they send me a demo, I might make suggestions about what I think the demo needs when they go into the real studio to do it. But um, in general, they're kind of on their own because I'm not there. I'm, I've, I've never in the studio with the artists. Even with the local artists, I'm never in the studio with the artists. And if, and that has led, you know, on occasion to something that I thought was, this is very on occasion, this doesn't happen a lot, happily, you know, where I thought it was very promising in demo, <clears throat> in demo form and what they give as a finished product is like, I, I don't want to do this. Right. And that, that of course is, is a very uh, uncomfortable and not fun conversation to have. I can only imagine. Uh, one thing that I find really cool about uh, Kineaform is the fact that there are a lot of uh, younger people in the offices. When I went by the offices the other day, there were a lot of college students who I imagine are getting kind of their first experience well, they're in the interns. business. Right. They're interns. So, um, you know, yeah, they're, I, I'm they're, aware they're, that they're yeah, interns. So, so they're interns. So, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, they're young because anybody older won't put up with not getting paid. Um, and rightly so. But, I mean, actually, uh, uh, we try and give, I think we actually have a very good intern experience. So we try to give them pretty, pretty good and interesting jobs and not just have them make my coffee, you know? Right. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the question I was trying to get to, which I wonder, uh, there's also periods, there's also periods where you don't have interns. I mean, you, you happen to come in. I mean, we, we have three, we have four right now. Um, I mean, there's lots of periods where we don't have any, um, four is, you know, we've had, I guess, four or five. Um, it kind of depends, um, uh, what, you know, who's available and, and, and are they interested? And, you know, it's, you'd be, sh well, maybe you wouldn't be surprised at the number of people who, oh, a record, you know, they think they're going to come in and I'm going to have like, you know, Kanye West is going to be coming in and, and I'm going to be producing him and, and the money is falling from the sky and they're very quickly disappointed and what a, low rent bum operation it is but you know i mean uh, we've had i mean we've definitely had things you know they they help with they help with a tour promo uh they help with well all you know just all different kinds of jobs so it's kind of interesting i think if nothing else just seeing you know they can they can see what a small business does and you know the the like everyday reality of a of a small business
Sure. I haven't actually had a chance to ask you the question I keep trying to ask you yet, which is, um, what's the impact? <laughs> Maybe I'm dancing you, around it. I uh, know you just keep interrupting <laughs> me. Um, uh, the question I was trying to ask you was, what's the what's the impact on you of having a bunch of folks in their 20s who probably are not familiar at all with most of the music that comes out? Oh, um, well, you know, that's sort of interesting. You, you mean that, that so, so having people who aren't interested in the music that we put out? Or, is that, I don't know if or, it's fair to say they're not interested, but they probably have had zero exposure given Well, they're not even necessarily it. interested. Actually, that's a really interesting um, thing. And uh, I have an assistant named Simon, and Simon has worked for me for like 12 years. And um, before that, I had people um, and had not did not work for me for nearly as long. Um, and they, they all came from a background of liking and knowing this music. And Simon came on from a, a from a little punk rock record store next door to my office that was closing, and I happened to need somebody, and Simon was out of a job. And, I mean, I kind of thought, it's like, well, you know, he can help for six months till he finds something more that works. But, you know, what I found is that, you know, and, and Simon is, is, I mean, he's a smart guy, and he's an interesting guy, and I really like him, and I totally, you know, he, he understands everything. And for the most part... You know, what we do isn't his main sphere of interest. And it's sort of like, it doesn't matter. He's interested in the music business and he finds the work interesting. And, you know, I mean, the, the, the tenant of punk is DIY and we're DIY. We're just not DIY punk. And so I think it's good. I mean, it's like, you know, I mean, I mean, actually, uh, the majority of my employees don't necessarily, um, love what we release you know they're interested in it because it's their job and they're they're genuinely interested but it's not necessarily what they listen to on their free time and it's like i don't care it's not it's not a company town you know it's like uh uh and sometimes they find the things that that we release that are interesting and and also they open my experience to things that you know i'm 55 you know it's like i may not if i wasn't exposed to things through them I'd be an old fart. I mean, I am an old fart, but at least I'm an old fart who has to listen to, to other things and, 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 um, process it and decide for myself whether I, what I see in it or what I don't see in it. And I think it also helps to keep, uh, you know, what I release, um, current and valid for, uh, younger people. I mean, I'll give a perfect example, which is, you know, Simon's very much from the punk rock world. And, uh, when I first met him and he does, he now does DJing and stuff. And so he's very, you know, interested in electronica and dance music and stuff like that. So there's a lot of that playing in the office. And some of it is really interesting. And some of it to me sounds like really boring seventies disco, but that's not, you know, it's fine. It's like, you know, he plays it, I get to hear it, whatever. Um, but I also have gotten exposed to more like computer music and, and glitchy things and things that I might not have been exposed to. And when I was sent by Rob Mazurik, the proposed Sao Paulo underground record we recently did, I, I, I played it and I was listening to it and I was thinking to myself, well, this is really great. And this sounds to me like this could reach a different audience than what, you know, a lot of what we release reaches. 
and I really like it. I, I wonder, you know, and so I kind of specifically played it. You know, Simon's walking around filling orders and doing stuff that he does, and I'm in my little office with my computer, and I specifically was playing it when he was working, and he walked by the office, and he kind of gets this look, and he sticks his head and goes, what are you listening to? And I said to him, I said, man, that's exactly the response I was hoping you'd give. You know, it made him take notice, and, you know, it's like, does this appeal to someone who likes what he listens to, obviously it did. It made him, you know, he stuck his nose in the office and, want, and demanded to know what I was playing. It's like, at that point, it's like, not only do I like this, but this might reach different people. It's like, I want to do this record. So give me an idea of some things either that are about to come out or that have come out recently on Canadian Forum. Okay, so, well, we have um, a Washington, D.C. duo. I mean, I'm a, I'm a Washington-based label, and I have nothing against Washington, D.C., but I don't, uh, I'm, I'm not a local label in that I don't specifically work with local artists. So I haven't worked with a local uh, band since uh, a group called Boudion broke up in 1998. But uh, it's a... Uh, Janelle and Anthony are a cello and guitar duo. Uh, they both use a lot of ele uh, electronic effects. Uh, I use the term boxes. And they've been working together for a number of years. And they've made what I think is just a really charming album called Where Is Home that came out quite recently. And they're out touring it right now. And it's, you know, it's, they just have a, a huge range of influences. I mean, she's basically a classical player who has also studied uh, Indian and, and I think Persian music. And he's essentially a jazz bow who has also basically played everything. I mean, I remember he called me up and uh, said, hey, you know, uh, he invited me to this bar near the office. He said, I'm playing with a, you know, I'm playing with a rockabilly band. So they can, they can basically do anything. And there's just a lot of everything in it and a lot of electronic effects and a lot of... Um, you know, a lot of uh, ambient music and a lot of, of, of noise, but kind of controlled pretty noise. It's kind of interesting. And again, that's, that's something where, you know, things that, you know, 15 years ago 
to me seemed unbelievably noisy. I mean, that's just part of the currency of music today. And, and luckily I've listened to it and, you know, I, I've gotten to the point where it doesn't sound like noise anymore, or at least it sounds like I said, it sounds like pretty noise. <laughs> <laughs> this huge project by Wadada Leo Smith called 10 Freedom Summers. Uh, it's a piece he's been working on for uh, many, many years, on and off, but many, many years. And it's uh, basically dedicated to the civil rights movement. And I've been working with Wadada. Well, we worked together um, through Henry Kaiser, guitar player on the West Coast, who I've worked with for many years uh, uh, on various things. Uh, Henry and Wadada co-led a, a, an electric Miles Davis tribute band called Yo Miles and did a couple of records. And then a few years later, uh, Wadada contacted me himself and wanted to know if uh, I'd like to hear something. And i like, yes, love to. And we started working together, I guess, about four years ago, four or five years ago. And... Uh, You've know, been doing very well with his stuff, getting a lot of attention. Uh, he's a totally sweet, great guy, really fun to work with, very funny guy. And so uh, this is a four-CD set, and li like I said, it's a, you know, I mean, I've never done a four-CD set before, and quite honestly, hope to never do another four-CD set, but if I got to do one, this is it. And, uh, and then uh, another one that just came out is a Norwegian group called Pixel, and uh, it's uh, sax, trumpet, bass, drums. So it's kind of like your, it's the, I guess the archetypical uh, late 50s, you know, ornette or West Coast, no piano, jazz quartet. Um, and what they do is, you know, it's very, it's definitely jazz and it's all acoustic. But uh, it's kind of simple, very nice lines, very simple and clean with rock drumming. So kind of they're doing kind of like the bad plus thing, um, kind of rockish drumming in an absolutely a jazz context and some songs. Again, you know, just trumpet, sax, bass, drums, 
uh, but the bassist and leader is a woman named Ellen, and she sings, and she sings quite well, and it's kind of, it's it's an interesting contrast, and it, again, it's something that I think is, um, uh, you know, has the potential to, to bring in younger listeners. I mean, you spoke with, did you speak with Luke and Gio of... Uh, of Capital Bop, who are local guys, and I'm very friendly with them and admire what they do. And, you know, what they're trying to do is, you know, it's like, how do we bring, you know, how do we bring young people into this music? You know, what do we do? You know, we don't want to make it dumb, but we also can't, you know, it's not 1958, it's not 1965, it's not 1968, it's not, you know, it's 2012, and time marches on, and, you know, what can the music bring and do for these people? And I think that's very important. You know, um, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to badmouth somebody, but I don't mind because he's spent his entire career badmouthing people. You know, Wynton Marcellus is a great musician, but he's got such a narrow definition of jazz. Uh, you know, maybe he's grown up a little bit and decided that, that it's not such a great thing to badmouth everybody, but you know, it's like, it isn't 1965 anymore. You know, Miles in 65 was totally great, but Pixel in 2012 is totally great. And I just, you know, uh, time does not stand still and art does not stand still because if it does, it's, it's art, but it's also becomes fossilized in a period piece and it's, it no longer has any chance to reach new people. You know, all you have to do is look at, you know, the attendees of symphony orchestras and the horrible issues that those people are facing. And I would, I'm really glad that it's, I don't think it is happening to jazz. I mean, Winton may have won the funding, but he lost the war. You know, the people who won the war were Ken Vandermark who got in the, in the, in the bus with his band for years and toured with Vandermark five. And, you know, the, the groups that, you know, and the bad plus and, and, and all these groups who, you know, Maybe they wear a suit and tie and maybe they don't, but they don't try to pretend like it's 1965 anymore. And like, that's all that jazz is because jazz, I'm very happy to say jazz is a huge thing. Jazz means so much. And one of the greatest things to me that I see in jazz is the wars over what is jazz and this is not jazz. You know, they were fought in the eighties and, you know, I don't know if it's because of, of a desire to reach more people or a desire to, um, you know, a desire, you know, because they see it as a limited thing, but, you know, they want to broaden their audience. And so they bring in people for whom, you know, they're really interested in noisy improvisation. You know, they grew up with Sonic Youth. There's somebody else who deserves props is, you know, Sonic Youth and specifically Thurston and Lee, you know, who brought a huge number of people to improvise music and to crazy music by saying, we like this. We think this is cool. We think this is really cool. And, um, I, you know, you can, you can expand without dumbing down. I mean, I'm not, I'm not suggesting the Kenny geization of everything this is not the can you know expanding out so that you're bringing in elements of of laptop technology and maybe rock drumming or uh other things that people who don't strictly grow up all the time hearing jazz 
uh, are used to hearing and maybe want to hear or noise or elements of aggression or things like that. Um, I mean, I just think it's, it's a wonderful thing. And, and, and the jazz community, be it the big magazines, the radio stations and the audiences all seem to get that. And that was not, I don't think it's so true 15 years ago, but it's extremely true now. And it really makes me very happy. also doing a um, upcoming I'm doing a project by a group called Living by Lanterns and um, it's co-led by uh, vibus Jason Adeshevitz and drummer Mike Reed both of whom are composers as well um, that'll be out in September it's about a nine-piece band it brings together uh, four or five people from Chicago and four or five people from New York and it's based on uh, unreleased Sun Ra rehearsals, very small bits, which these two guys turned into pieces. They didn't, they're not Sun Ra pieces, they're basically improvised rehearsals that they listened to and took little germs of ideas and turned them into their compositions. So the, uh, that's coming. I'm doing a record by Jason Robinson called Tiresian Symmetry, which is a eight-piece band, two drums, bass, guitar, Jason plays sax, second, sax, second uh, saxist is Marty Ehrlich, and there's two brass players, so it's kind of, um, it's a little bit like uh, like a Henry Threadgrill, what, what was it, um, I'm trying to think of what, what, what Henry's group was, um, oh, Very Very Circus had the two brass players, didn't it? It's a little bit like that, it's, it's obviously inspired by that, it doesn't sound like Henry. Um, but we're doing that. Uh, we recently did a record by a group, uh, our second release by a group from New York called Ergo, uh, who are, again, definitely a jazz group uh, led by a trombone player named Brett Soroka. Um, it also has piano and electric piano and drums. But Brett was very interested in connecting the dots between computer technology, laptop music, and jazz and uh, so he plays laptop and trombone and 
we're doing, uh, we, we just did their, their third record, which has guests. Uh, Mary Halverson's on more than half of the record, and there's another guitar player as a guest. Finally, Steve, I wanted to ask you what it's like to be a record label in 2012, which I imagine is fairly different than it was in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. Um, the label's more famous. It gets more attention and more people listen to it while less people pay for, for listening to it, which is really hard. So it's right now it's very hard. In other words, because they're downloading because, well, illegal da- copies? Yeah, or? Right, downloading illegal copies. I, when you say downloading, I have to say, you know, I mean, obviously people download legal copies and that's a sale and a sale is a sale and God bless them, you know. Um, but yes, I mean, there's, there's just rampant, rampant theft. And it's hard, you know, I mean, everybody... Everybody's sticking it to the man, but um, you stick it to the man enough and the man goes away and then, you know, it will be, I mean, I like to think, I mean, maybe this is elitist, but, you know, one of the things that we do is we, we put our money and our time into these records and we, you know, we, I pay a staff to promote these records to make try to make people to hear them try to make sure that people can read about them try to get them on the radio and you know and basically say i think that there's something here enough that i was willing to put our money in uh and that it's a sound investment and if that goes away then you know i mean i guess everything will be free uh but there'll be a lot of waiting through a lot of chaff to um i was looking for a word i could say on the air uh uh wading through a lot of chaff to to find things and i think some people you know at a certain point some people may stop so it's it's very hard now i don't i don't know where i don't know where i don't know if if we've hit the worst of it or if it's going to get worse i i think maybe we've already passed through the worst of it not that not that illegal downloading is going away but i'm not sure that i don't think it's getting worse at least i don't think so am i hearing you say that it sounds like one of the main functions of a label like cuneiform is to serve as a kind of a curator or a a trusted set of ears so that over time you build up a relationship with your audience and they say oh it's on cuneiform and i know i like the stuff that cuneiform puts out so even if i don't know this artist that's that's exactly that's exactly what it means i mean the only thing i would you know we have a very wide uh, range of releases and and you know i don't think that there's that many i mean we're talking about our jazz releases so we have a ton of jazz releases and jazz related releases but you know we also have things that are not of interest to the jazz audience uh but i would think that even a jazz jazz listener would look and say you know oh this is a jazz release on cuneiform i have some of their other jazz releases they're all really good I'm probably interested in this. They'd at least look at it. Yes. Sure. Sure. I think I think curator is exactly the the term. 
I think that's exactly the term. And uh, I said finally for the last question, but this will actually be the final. <laughs> um, I'm just I'm interested in the fact that you are based uh, here in the D.C. area, uh, and you you know. You, I'm just interested in what that's been like. What what impact do you think that's had on the label? How it's affected how you're able to find musicians or how they find you? And maybe in this day and age, it doesn't have any effect. I think it has zero effect, and I think it's always had zero effect. I mean, I could have been in New York and paying even worse rents than I pay here. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, this is where I live, and this is where I, I basically where I grew up, and I have family here, and I like it here, and. I'm happy here, so I, I don't see that. I mean, I can see why musicians maybe need to go to New York, sure. But I'm not sure I see why why a record label has to be in New York. I mean, uh, I mean, there aren't that many. Look, you know, even before the internet, because I go back before the internet. Even before the internet, there weren't that many people willing to release, you know, a Curlew or a Doctor Nerve or a Universe Zero. You know, uh, or you totem to, to name four early releases I did. And, um, and they found us even though we weren't in New York, you know, or in LA or wherever I'm supposed to be. And I mean, certainly now it, it, it's utterly meaningless. I mean, you know, why do you have to be in a specific place? I mean, like I said, you know, I love, I love New York, but it's, it, to me, it's just, I, I guess there'd be even more places for me to go see music uh, at the end of the workday. I go see a lot of concerts, but there's already more concerts I can absorb in Washington. So I don't know what I would be gaining, and I know I'd be paying a lot more rent, and that would adversely uh, impact uh, uh, what we do. Um, you know, I just, I, I'm not sure if the people you talk, I don't know if you're talking to record labels. The, the, I mean, it's always been true. For a label like Cuneiform, and I assume a label like, I don't know what other labels you, you speak with, the number of sales, even taking out the equation, even in the good old days before internet theft, it was tiny. I mean, you know, the biggest record we've ever had has sold, you know, maybe it sold 11,000 copies. Maybe, you know, um... It may have clawed its way to 11,000 now. I mean, I mean, there were a couple. The last time I bothered to look and count it all up, you know, we were approaching 10,000. That was a few years ago. So we've probably clawed our way to 11,000 on a couple of things. But, you know, put out a jazz record. I mean, you know, put out a jazz record and, and I mean, you know, you sell 1,500 and it's like, woo! You know, um, I, I, I'll, I'll end with this. I, I hope that I'm allowed to say this. Um, so yeah, I'm very friendly with Wadada Leo Smith. He's a very nice man. He likes to call up. He likes to bounce ideas off of me. And, uh, you know, and he's a very good selling artist for us. And so we've done this four CD set. And I mean, it is a four CD set. So it's, you know, but he, uh, he called up and I, I said, you know, the record's come out and it's doing well, but it's just come out. And he, he, uh, you know, I, I pick up the phone and I say, hey, Wadada. And he said something like, hey, Steve, it's the 3,000 man. And I knew exactly what he was saying. Like, oh, we're, are we going to hit 3,000 with this one, Wadada? <laughs> he says, yes, I feel it. I know it. You know, it's like, that's nice. I mean, quite honestly, sell 3,000. I mean, I would be thrilled to sell 3,000. But in the scheme of things and in all the people that think that, you know, I'm walking down the street 
uh, shoving thousand dollar bills that I've stolen from my artists uh, uh, in my pocket. Three thousand is not a lot of copies in the real world. It just isn't. It's not a lot of copies of anything. Yeah, it's like the per minute sales of a pop record. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much, <laughs> pretty much. Well, my guest is Steve Feigenbaum. He's uh, the creative force behind Cuneiform Records. It's been a lot of fun to talk to you about this. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. That's music from Janelle and Anthony, two beautiful human beings who make wonderful music and who I had a chance to meet when I was on my tour last year. And they're on Cuneiform Records. And you also heard music from Curtis Hasselbring and Blue Cranes and uh, the Kandinsky Effect and all kinds of cool people, Sao Paulo Underground. So uh, definitely check out Cuneiform Records. Thanks to Steve Feigenbaum um, and Stephen Joyce for their generosity. Thank you. Please go to thejazzsession.com. Keep contributing until Wednesday, July 31st, 2013 at 11.59 p.m. You'll get the thank you gifts, and you have the potential to change my life and change the life of this show. Thank you for everything you've already done. Come back next time because there's going to be one for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.